Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Sir Michael Caine. Good evening. Good and I evening. want to mention that we're uh, calling this evening Sir Michael Caine Icon, so you now have titles on, on, on both sides of your name. Yeah, I saw I, I, I myself described as an icon, and it's very difficult being an icon because there's nowhere to go to learn. <laughs> and there are no restaurants where we all go, like the icon restaurant, where we, we can swap stories on how it's to It's a feed. small group. It's a small yeah, it's group. a very small group, and, and you never meet any icons. So it's, it's kind of lonely there. Who's, who's the greatest actor? There must be um, an actor you've met who you were just in awe of, you know, where you, where you maybe grew up watching their films. Or... Oh, yeah. I mean, um, when I first went to, to, uh, to Hollywood, um, Shirley MacLaine brought me over to star in a movie with her because she was a big star and had a choice of actors, and she saw me in a movie, and she brought me to Hollywood, and, uh, and she gave a party... For, 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 to welcome me and the first person to walk in was Gloria Swanson <laughs> and she's very small and she's a lot smaller than I thought and the second person was Frank Sinatra Okay. I mean they didn't stop and say hello to me they walked straight <laughs> they walked straight past and said hello a, to Shirley yeah, yeah. but I, I stood there but, but, but then my whole time in Hollywood I, would, I mean one of the, I, I became very close friends with Cary Grant you know who, who I adore, and I, I, I thought he was great. You know? Did you uh, tell us a bit about the, the neighborhood you grew up in? Um, and, and did you see movies? Did you go to watch movies a lot? I, as a young man, I watched movies. I went to the movies seven days a week. It's, it was an escape for me. What you're going to see in, in tonight in this movie, you're going to, in Harry Brown, you will see what you call, we call them council estates in England. You're, you call them the projects right. in, in America. And this is a very, very dangerous project at a place called the Elephant and Castle. And it's actually where I do come from. <laughs> <laughs> and when I say come from, I don't mean the area, right there. And, and I used to be a gang member years ago, but not like they are now. I don't know. We were kind of sort of like Mary Poppins compared <laughs> with the guys that are there now. We didn't have oaths and swearing-in ceremonies and all that. We just stuck together so no one would beat us up. But anyway, where I come from is exactly what you see this evening. And, I'm, I'm, and there is even on the side of this block of flats, there is a mural with me on it. As, as someone who came from there. Hmm. Hmm. The other one who came from there was Charlie Chaplin, but I'm, I'm not even in his class. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of movies were, did you go see? You were... um, I, I loved... Um, I, it, it, it was, the first guy was always uh, uh, Bogart, anything that Bogart was in. I, I remember very clearly, so I spent a, one whole week in the cinema, cinema watching Treasure Sierra Madre and, hmm. and, and Maltese Falcon. Uh, and it was very strange for me because later in life, uh, um, 
John, it was John Houston was the director, and I love John Houston directing. And then later in life, he cast me in The Man Who Would Be King. And um, it was the part he originally wanted Bogart for, and Bogart died. And, and the Sean Connery part was Clark Gable. You know, so and, and so I had this tremendous feeling of sort of belonging, to him. <laughs> and, and and it's it was kind of like all my dreams came true. You know, I was this, this dirty right little gangster guy sitting in a movie, gang kid, and saying one day I and here I am, and I've been here for forty years, not here there. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned John Huston, who of course legendary director and you're mm -hmm. working with him and I, I want you to talk about his um, directing technique his, his directing technique was he never hardly ever spoke to you I, I, I was doing a long I'll give you for instance when we first started a couple of days in The Man Who Will Be King I had this long speech and halfway through it he said cut and I hadn't made a mistake or I thought I was doing rather well and he, he just looked, I said, John, what, 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 why did you stop me? He said, you could speak faster, Michael. He's an honest man. <laughs> and I've been suspicious of people who talk slowly ever since. <laughs> and I, I said to him a, a little while later, that was the only direction he ever gave me. And I said to him, so halfway through the movie, I said, I said John, you, you never give me any direction. He said, the art of directing, Michael, is casting. If, he said, if you do it right, you don't have to say another word. <laughs> and there it was. And, and he was right. The art of directing is... And he always said to me, he said, you get paid a lot of money to do this. You don't need me to tell you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a big, uh, a long tradition um, of British actors who study theater, who start out as stage actors and then become screen actors. And you struck me as somebody who was really uh, born for the screen. Do you think that's true? I mean, born to be well, a screen actor. I was the first generation, I think, of actors who, who the first time they saw an actor, it was on screen. You know, you always read it like Olivier or Ralph Richardson or that sort Nanny took me to the theater and the curtain went up and I knew what I wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't how I started. <laughs> what happened with me is some big boys took me to the Trupney Rush for Children on a Saturday morning, and the curtain went down, and what had happened is someone had thrown an overcoat off the balcony, and it went straight over my head, and I was in darkness. I took it off, and then I put my feet up on the, 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 the seat in front of me, and the entire row fell back because someone had taken all the screws out of the floor. <laughs> So I'm sitting there, and then finally the movie came on, and it was The Lone Ranger. And I went, that's what I want to do. Not be The Lone Ranger, be an actor. I never wanted anything to do with horses. I don't like horses. Well, <laughs> horses don't like me. But, I mean, that's, that's, I was the first generation to, to do that. But also, uh, um, where I came from, people said to me later, you know, when I'd made did you go to drama school? I said, where I came from, nobody knew there was such a thing as a drama school. You know, I mean, we weren't, it was, and, and, um, and also there was a sort of stigma to it, because when, when I told my father that I was going to be an actor, he in instantly knew that I was gay. Because <laughs> you're always gay if you're, you know, if you're going to be an actor. 
And, and, and I, I remember that when we were on the streets, there was a reverend called Reverend Jimmy Butterworth, and he had a club called Clubland, and he used to scoop us delinquents off the streets and sort of entice us in there with basketball and all that, you know. And, and, and I, I went in there, and there was again a problem with being an actor. Uh, uh, when, this was much younger, much before that, I'd experienced this sissy thing. Because I was in the basketball, you know, and, and, and on the way to the basketball was the drama class, the Amateur Dramatic Society, and it was a swing door, so there was windows in it so you could see through. And I used to go up, and I noticed that it was full of pretty girls, because all the pretty girls joined the drama class, you know, and all us butch guys were going upstairs playing basketball and all this. And one day I went to, and asked if I could join the Amateur Dramatic Society, and all the guys said to me, you're a sissy. I said, listen, I'm in there with half a dozen beautiful girls and you're up in the shower with naked guys and you're calling me a sissy. <laughs> so that was my problem, you know. Try, try, there was always something, in, in, you know. And um, when, uh, the way I did it became an actor. I was working in a factory and I was with an old man who was working there with me, uh, uh, and, and he said, you're not going to do this for the rest of your life. You know, I, I was 20, I was just out of the army, I was a very fit guy. And he said, I, I said, no, I'm go I want to be an actor. He said, oh, he said, you can get those jobs in the paper. I said, what? He said, yeah, there's a paper called The Stage. My daughter's an amateur, a, a semi-professional singer, buy The Stage. And I went and bought The Stage, and I got it, and it said, stage manager, small parts, and I, I, got, the, um, I got the job. And it turned out that all the actors, all the other actors in the company were sissies. <laughs> I think that's why I got the job. I was the only butch one there. I used to play the policeman and all that, anybody who had a fight. <laughs> they were a bit short on that, you know? So, that, yeah. But that's how I started in, in, in the rep repertory company. And nine years later, I got my first proper part in a movie, which was Zulu. And, uh, and it's a very interesting performance, the performance you give in Zulu. This is the character that you play. Uh, you, tell me if this is, is correct, but I think you, you had done a number of bit parts and been sort of known as... A oh, I'd done a lot of bit parts in second feature movies, like right. Two Days Work, and the policeman who drags the villain off, you know, or something. Yeah. And uh, I, I always came at the end and did something. You said the butler said dinner is served, or something <laughs> like that. But I never had a part with a lot of dialogue. Right. And the first part I got, with, I was in the theatre. After nine years, I finally got to the West End, which is our version of like Broadway. I'd always been in provincial repertory. For nine years, I was in the theatre. And I got there, and two nights into the run, Stanley Baker, who was the star of the film, and Cy Enfield, the American director who directed it, came and cast me, and I never went back to the theatre again. And I, I always thought my movie career depended on the, 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 the length of the bar at the Prince of Wales Theatre because that's where they met me. And I went there, and I went to play, the, uh, being a Cockney myself, obviously, I went there to play the Cockney Corporal. When I got there, they said James Booth, another actor, had got the part. And I was walking out, and it was a very long bar. And Cy Enfield said, wait a minute, as I was just shutting the door, he said, can you do a posh accent? I said, I can do any accent. I've been in rep for nine. I've done a thousand plays. I played everything from the Lord to anybody. I said, do any accent. And he said, we'll do a screen test. 
and I did a screen test with that accent, which was very upper crust, and I got the part. So after all these years of being the Cockney and sort of gang kid, the first part I played in the movie was an extremely posh officer. But you, um, I think you bring an interesting edge to that character, and it's an, it is a big epic film, but you really stood out. It's really a film that... One of the things I did is I, I accidentally made a very sort of... Sh- did a shrewd statement, and I sort of took my own advice forever, because Stanley Baker was the star playing a very rough uh, um, captain, and he, he said, well, you're this a sort of effete, foppish... Right, uh, uh, um, uh, officer. By the books. Yeah, and and a very um, actual, a, a real uh, a person called Lieutenant Gonville Bromhead, and he said, "So you're very weak and foppish and all that." And I said, "Stanley, I said, I've got an idea." I said, "You overcome this man. You beat him." I said. Won't that make you look stronger if you beat a strong man rather than a foppish man? Because the minute I walk on, they're going to say, Stanley could walk all over this guy, you know? And then I ran into the homosexual thing again. I played this terribly foppish officer. You'll see it in a minute. Okay. So let's... Uh, Yo, just let me tell the yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hold on a minute. And we Joe can... <laughs> Levine, Joe Levine produced a movie and he gave me a seven-year contract and I played this very foppish officer. And... After the movie it, it, it went out, he took, he took my contract away and, and I, I went to see him. He said, I'm terribly sorry, Michael. He said, but you'll never be a movie star. He said, because you come over as gay in the movie. You know, I was terribly like this, hello, and all this. And, you know, to an American, that sounds gay anyway. But I mean, it's just, <laughs> in England, it's just good diction. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should have been a stand-up comic, shouldn't I? Getting into shit going. Uh, um, um, anyway, he took. He said. He said, "I'm going to take your contract away." He said because you really can't make it. I said, "Joe, I'm playing a character." I said, "I'm a Cockney gang member from from bloody Elephant and Castle, and you think I'm a foppish officer?" But he, he still took my contract away. <laughs> okay, so now we'll uh, look at this scene from Zulu from 1964. You'll see what I mean now.
the way my research for that is I went every Friday for lunch for about six months to the officers' mess of the Coldstream Guards. And Lord Litchfield, who became my friend, was the second lieutenant put in charge of me because I had been a soldier, but I'd been a private, and I knew what that relationship with officers and privates were, but I never knew what the relationship between officers were. So I studied it at the officers' mess and watched what they did. But I must say, I thought I was a little gay there when I sort of thought. <laughs> you fought in Korea, in the Korean War? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, is that something that you've drawn on, um, that experience, drawn on a, lo- on a lot in your other films? Well, uh, um, it, it made... So combat does that to you. you. It makes you an entirely different person. I remember when, when we... we we marched out of the line for the first time. We were being taken over uh, our position by another uh, uh, regiment of, of British soldiers. And we were marching out and they were marching in. And we were only six months older than them. And I looked at them and then I looked around at all my friends. And they looked like babies and we looked like old men. <laughs> it was all in the faces, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's quite, quite amazing. Yeah. Um, you've, this scene, scene is an example of the way that you do so much with so little. You're such an economical actor. You use uh, silence a lot, this sort of glare, uh, unblinking glare that you're famous for. Could you talk about <laughs> um, how you learned to, um, this economical style of acting? Yeah, well, I, I, well, the thing is, you're supposed to be a person, and people don't act. Right. They behave. Right. They look listen and speak you know that's what you have to do so many people do acting but there's a thing in there if you see in the helmets that we were wearing Stanley Baker's got his helmet up like this and I've got mine like that and what I did is Brando I cop Brando was my hero at that time and Brando always did this and looking around and he never looked up until the hit line you know the, the one he wanted to bang you in the eye with and I thought, I'll use the, this as a... And, and I went to the first rushes, and the director of photography had told everybody to keep the hats back so he could see the eyes. You saw Stanley there, his hat was back, it looked a little bit stupid. And you, <laughs> but you could see his eyes. But when you looked at me, it was like that. And when I said something, I came up and caught the... Uh, but when I went to the rushes, I'd never been in rushes, I'd never seen myself on a big screen, I'd never been in a picture big enough to go to any rushes I was not invited and I went to the rushes and I came on and the director of uh, photography said look at that silly bastard I told him to keep his bloody hat up and he's gone and teared his eyes Hmm. and they didn't know and also I I based part of the character I I look for very powerful people and I, I Looked at Prince Philip, who's a very powerful man in our land, and he always has his hands behind his back because he doesn't have to defend himself. He doesn't have to wave his hand to attract your attention when he wants to talk. He doesn't have to open a door. So he can walk as a powerful man with his hands behind his back. And if you saw the film, all the way through the film, I always have my hands behind my back looking at... And Paramount executives, when they saw the rushes, I saw this telegram said, fire actor playing Bromhead, 
doesn't know what to do with hands. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's, you know it's true because you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I, I'd be a world-famous writer if I could. <laughs> One thing that I've heard you say um, about your working method is that you put a tr- rehearsal is the time to do all the work, to work really hard. And then, it, it, yeah. and then uh, acting is the time that you're re- relaxing. Yeah, it, it, well, it's, it's Stanislavski. I'm a method actor. And, and the f- first simplistic line is the rehearsal is the work and the performance is the relaxation. And I have my, my view of, of movie acting is um, if, if you're watching me on screen and you say to someone with you, isn't that Michael Caine a wonderful actor? Then I have failed. What you should be saying is, what's going to happen to Harry Brown next? You shouldn't see the actor. You shouldn't see the acting. That's what I've always tried for. Not always successfully, I I must admit. But uh, you try to make the acting and yourself disappear. Um, You might see an example of that this evening. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the next clip that I want to, or the next film I want to show a scene from is uh, The Italian Job. Which was remade. A number of your films have been remade. Yeah, they do. Um, so, uh, and this was really the great sort of heist film, the British heist film of the '60s, and has a, a line in it that was voted the the top single line yeah. from a movie, a yeah, British I know film. Which one's okay, <laughs> so um, why don't we just go to that? Let's just show the clip, and then we'll talk about it. This is from the Italian Job from 1969. So what is it about that line? Something about the delivery, the, the timing of that. that, I, that I don't know. They, 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 it, it just, you don't know these lines. That people come up, this is years later. I mean, someone will say it to me today. You know, They're always saying, when they see me, they say, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. But <laughs> the thing was, when you do that line, nothing occurred to me. Right. You know. But there was a line. I'm aware that there are lines that uh, happen. There's another one in, in Get Carter 
where uh, I say you're a big man, but you're out of shape with me. It's a business uh, mm-hmm. with, when I'm and t- taking care of, some, uh, of a guy. Uh, and, and these lines come, and I, I've always tried to anticipate one. Mm. And um, there's one in this film t- tonight when a, 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 a villain fires a gun at me and um, it doesn't go off. And I, just before I shoot him, I say to him, you failed to maintain your weapon. <laughs> Which is a British Army thing. The law is you must maintain your weapon. And if on the rifle range, you know, when you're a soldier, it doesn't go off. The sergeant will say to you, you failed to maintain your weapon. So you spent two days peeling potatoes. Mm. But I can see this with these sort of young lads in England coming when, you know, some guy in the pub says, my girlfriend's left me, and they all go, you failed to maintain your weapon. (laughs) 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 I'm sorry about this. It's getting more vulgar. It's getting later, that's why. It's actually a pretty good um, segue into the next clip with with Get Carter, but we'll wait a little bit for, uh, for that. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a there's a get kit card. Yeah, there, there, that is that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> Do you often um, work on collaborate with, with screenwriters? I'm wondering. It's it seems to me no. that you might no. No, I never collaborate with screenwriters. I don't need to know who they are sometimes. Right. Because the screen the screenwriter the script is the most important thing. You know, it's like real estate, you know, location, loc- movies, the script, the script, the script. Mm-hmm. But, of course, you never see them. They've done it all mm-hmm. before, you know, and, and they're not, not influential, you know. I was just wondering if you might find that sometimes um, you need less dialogue that's on the page because as it's... Oh, I will change things. Right, yeah, if, that's if, what if I, I feel. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I put stuff in or take stuff out or change right. it. Yeah, it's not like in the theatre where they sort of go mad. But I, I, I did, I, I did, a, I did a movie for Neil Simon, mm. uh, and uh, and I said to him, uh, "Can I ad lib or change any of the dialogue?" He said, "Yes, Michael." He said, "If it's funnier than me." <laughs> so I never touched a single line. Obviously, <laughs> it's California Suite. I did, yeah. Hmm. Um. Could you talk about some of the roles you did in the 60s uh, after Zulu that led to this really um, interesting variety of roles you played? Um, you know, yeah, uh, after Zulu, I, I did uh, um, I, I did Ifcris File, yeah. um, which is and uh, um, and I was reading that novel, and and it was Harry Palmer, but he, in the book he didn't have a name. And, and I remember we, we were trying to think of a name for him and we wanted the dullest name possible. And Harry Saltzman, the producer, and I were having lunch and I thought, I said, I was at school, the dullest boy in our school was called Palmer. Sid Palmer, but Sid's too interesting. And I said, Harry's a dull name. <laughs> and he said to me, that's okay, Michael. My real name's Herschel. <laughs> so I never offended him but we had to name our own guy you know in, in the Ipcris file and then just before it came out he said I'm going to put your name above the title 
I said, so, oh, thank you, Harry. He said, oh, don't thank me. He said, if I don't think you're a star, who the hell else is going to? <laughs> so he got that. But Harry was the most generous man because he gave me a, a five-year, seven-year contract, um, which when the picture came out, you know, the, the money's payable to me was sort of ridiculous compared with what I could have earned without a contract. And on my birthday, he gave me my contract torn up in an envelope. Hmm. And that was the most generous thing not any producer did to me, any producer ever did, ever. Any of them. Now, he, was, he also produced the James Bond movies. Yes, right? he produced them with Cubby Broccoli, yeah. And you were, you were the character in the Epris Files was sort of... Uh, it was an sort of antithesis. Right. Because Bond was a very showy, uh, you know, Aston Martin's girl, shaken, not stirred, and all, all this. Uh, um, but, and, but mine was more of a, a real star. He's a guy with glasses, a, a real spy. Of, uh, no one would look at him, you know. He, he did his own shopping. I got the gay, hey, I got the gay thing again from the executive. <laughs> we did this stuff, and then there would, uh, the, Harry got this cable from Hollywood. I did, uh, did the, uh, uh, I, I cooked a girl a meal. I was trying to seduce her, and I'm, I'm a very good cook, Harry Palmer. Not me. Oh, I'm a good cook too, but I'm a better cook than Harry Palmer, actually. And, and <laughs> so you have the, the male lead cooking a meal for the girl. And they sent this thing when they saw the rushes. They said, the guy will be taken for gay. He can't cook a meal. For I mean, he's already wearing glasses. <laughs> he said, now he's cooking dinner. <laughs> he said, it's more or less like he's being a woman or something. He said, it, it doesn't work. But it, it did work. And a very funny thing is Harold Lloyd came to London and he rang me and he said, come and have dinner with me. He said, you're the first leading man in a movie with glasses since me. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, dinner, I, I had dinner with Harold Lloyd and I, I, I noticed he had a, a, a hand, like a deformed hand. And I always remember, remember him hanging on the clock in the silent film? Right. And I said, how did... I said, he saw me looking at the hand. He said, you're wondering how I hung on the clock, didn't you? He said, right. I had this thing up my sleeve, this hook. He said, I was on there. I said, was it a real clock? He said, yes. He was hanging up there and there was no net. They did silly things in those days. <laughs> I often hear you in interviews make, talk about these observations you make about uh, just gestures or, or things that you notice about people. And it seems like so much of your acting comes from this this observation of details that you just see around you in day-to-day -day life. Yeah, I, I mentioned it a little bit. If, you, if you're going, it's called, if, you, if you're going from the very weak to yeah. the very powerful, I've already struck on this, is it's less and less movement. Yeah. As, you go, as you go down and down the, the scale of, of social uh, uh, strength, you've got people who no one listens to and they make massive gestures the whole time. You know, listen to me. I want to, and they're trying to get your attention. Powerful people never do that because they've already got your attention. And I think another thing that you've shown in so many films, and, and you do this in Harry Brown, I won't get into specifics, but you show characters who are going through incredible stress or um, horrible things happen to them. And they, they uh, rather than sort of having these big emotional sort of actor scenes, there's a, a type of scene that I think we could all imagine of... Uh, where we think yeah. somebody's going for an Academy Award. Yeah, that well, sort of scene, yeah I know, you know what you mean. Yeah, where they go. I remember <laughs> watching, um, I was watching a rocket take off, at, you know, Cape Canaveral, and it, when the, 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 the young woman went off and it blew up with the young woman on it. And I was watching it, you know, and I, I watch, I don't, 
I don't watch plays to find out about acting. I watch other people. I watch newsreels. And so I'm always watching news. And this was a lesson to me. Her mother and father were standing there and she blew up. Obviously, dead, gone. This was the Challenger. In a movie. Yeah. In a, when the Challenger. The, the Challenger. When yeah. the, I'm watching it live. I'm watching the news. You know, I, I was interested. It's a Challenger going up and it blew up. And then suddenly the actor came in on me because they cut back to the mother and father. And they never moved. In a movie, they would have gone, oh, dude. Oh. <laughs> they never moved for eight minutes. Right. They just stared at the smoke for eight minutes. Yeah. And that's a lesson. It's also easier to do than burst into tears and throw yourself all over the floor. <laughs> but I think you've said that you, that you prefer to work in, on screen rather than stage because a stage actor has to... Well, no, with, with the stage, I worked on stage for nine years. You know, and, and my view of the stage in the cinema is, is, is uh, uh, um, the, the, the stage was a woman I loved dearly who treated me like dirt, and the movies is a mistress I can do anything with. <laughs> so I stood where I was more comfortable. You, um... And the money's better. <laughs> you had a number of mistresses in, uh, in, in Get Carter, which is uh, one of your defining roles, and that was a real interesting film. It came out right in the midst of the yeah. sexual revolution on film. It was actually released as an X-rated That's right. film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think they changed it from an X to an R as all the other yeah. movies Oh, yeah. There, was, yeah. there was always some morality thing going. There always <laughs> is, isn't there? Someone's doing something, and five years later, you say, well, what was all the fuss about? Right. <laughs> um, so let's see. I, there's um, two moments I wanted to show. The first one relates to this idea of maintaining your weapon, I guess, uh, the first scene. Yeah, all right. Um, but anyhow, let's just run these two scenes back to back from Get Carter. Understanding neighbours. 
see you when you've got your drawers on. I told you I wasn't gay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the, the response. This, the reputation of this film has really grown over the years. Yeah, it has. It, 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 it didn't take off in America because uh, uh, MGM had it and they, they sent it out as a second feature with a Frank Sinatra film called Dirty Dingus McGee. <laughs> so we sort of disappeared a little bit. But uh, um, Ted... Uh, Turner, who bought, he bought the library, right. and he liked it, and, and he put Get Carter on television, and that's how it got known in America, when he bought the library. But it was a real, um, th- this is a fairly explosive scene, the last one that we saw, but it's, the character is very contained. It's a, it's a real cool, tough character. Yeah, well, I, I based him on one particular gangster that I knew very well. Hmm. And he said to me, he saw me and he, he didn't know it was based on him. And he said to me, I saw that film Get Carter you made. I said, yeah. He said, I thought it was the biggest load of crap I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I said, why? He said, you weren't married. You never had any kids, no responsibility. Just remember, we were all married and we have a family. That picture was crap. And it was dishonest. I said, okay, yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, I'm talking about a guy who, who's just gone to jail for five murders. Mm. Recently, I mean, he's quite an old man now, as, as am I. <laughs> okay, what I'd like to do, uh, we have time to take a few questions, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Harry Brown before we break to see the film. So if you have a question, just raise your hand, and I'll, I'll repeat it so everybody can hear. So, uh, just to repeat, is there anything that you used to do as a young actor that you've discarded that you find you don't need to do anymore? Um, small parts. 
Um, I don't do movies with the producer's girlfriend or wife. Uh, no, I did. What was it? I, I didn't. Well, about t- in, in terms of technique, maybe. A, a technique. Things, yeah. Oh, blimey. Everything I used to do, I don't do anymore. I, I, um, yeah, I, I cut out all the acting. It's behavior. Movie acting is behavior. And I, I, I cut that out. Because you have to remember, I was a stage actor when I went into movies. Is a lot, does a lot of that come from knowing what, what the camera's going to confine? Yeah, oh, yeah, of? yeah. But the thing to make is, 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 is you eventually make the camera your friend. If, if I remember being in the theater and, and, and the, the producer saying to me, speak up. He said, there's man up the back there. He's paid to hear what you're saying. So he's got to hear every word as well. So obviously it was right. So I, my voice became, you know, it was, it's produced. I'm not shouting, but I can project it without this right up to the back. Uh, uh, um, and, and in a movie, you come in and there's a camera here. And if you twitch, the camera goes dishonest. Right. You know? You can whisper and the sound picks it up. It doesn't matter. So it's an entirely different technique of, of everything. Hmm. Okay. Right over here. I, uh, I once had the privilege of watching you uh, talk to a group of young actors and your bit of advice then was, if you see something you like, steal it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. yes. So, uh, are you still stealing? The, uh, yes, you said you gave I, up I, the actress. I, nick, I nick anything. I told you what I nicked off of Brando with the eyes because he was always doing this and, you know, his, his head was always down. I, I, I'd steal anything uh, from, from any actor. I, I don't mind who it is. And then you put it all together and it's you. You know, it, it becomes you because no one knows where you got it from. It's such a melange. It becomes you. Do you have favorite screen actors who you just think are always yeah Bra- Bra- Brando and Bogart I love I love both of those okay but who are work fun more re- any more oh well, ones? I, I love Bob <laughs> the, the the three Bob yeah. De Niro Dustin Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino uh, um, those are the three uh, American actors I admire okay and oh wait a minute my most favorite of all Jack Nicholson. Mm. He's my, but he's my friend. I mean, he's very close friends. So I know all the other guys, but we're not close friends. What was it like working with him? You did that Bob Fabulous. Rufus it was a great thing for me. Because what happened was I was in Miami. I, always, I more or less thought my career was over because I, I, I got to that stage where you, you, you're the, the young leading man and you get the girl and everything, and eventually there comes a time in your life. producer sent me a script, and I sent it back. I said, the part's too small. He sent it sent the script back. He said, I didn't want you to read The Lover, read The Father. And so I knew <laughs> there was a sort of hiatus in my life. And I, I, I left the business altogether. I didn't work for a while and I was down in Miami. I was having fun. I mean, I wasn't suicidal. I was having a great... <laughs> you know, uh, You're opening restaurants. And I, was, I was opening restaurants and, you know, and all this stuff. Uh, and uh, then Jack was down there and he came to me with a script called Blood and Wine. And he said, do this, you know, what, you know you're not doing anything, do it with me. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And I had the best, I'd never worked with Jack. I knew, I'd known him a long time. But I had the best, he, he sort of revived my faith in the industry, which I'd, I'd come to hate because I'd been given so many bad scripts and blah, 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 and all that. And I, I just, and, and as a person, 
He's the most extraordinary man. And I was so impressed with him. And of course, I'd known him a long time, but not very well. But when we worked in such a close situation on Blood and Wine, I got to know him much, much better. And he sort of restored my faith in the entire industry, which is why I came back and made any more pictures. Otherwise, I, I was gone. And that was 15 years ago. I wrote a biography and then finished it 15 years ago. I've just finished the second part, which is based on what I call the Nicholson period. Could you tell us about an actress you've lo loved working with? Because you've played, you know, Playboy and Lover. And, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, many different well, films. Well, my favorite of all was the woman who brought me to America, which was Shirley MacLaine, who brought me for, for, for Gambit. And she's lovely, and I made a few pictures with her. I love working with Elizabeth Taylor. She was great. Jane Fonda was great. Uh, um, who have I worked with recently? Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith was lovely. I, I loved working with her. Yeah. Okay. And uh, a, a Beyonce O. Knowles is very nice and all. <laughs> Let's go up to the balcony here. Go ahead. There was a five or six year old grandson who said they wanted to make movies when they grew up. What, what kind of advice would you give? Wait. <laughs> Be a child first. It's more important. You know, you see these kids. They, they, they get spoiled. They really think they're hot stuff, you know. And then it all goes sour. And, and a lot of them kill themselves. And or, or, or else you'd want to kill them if you met them. <laughs> <clears throat> right here. So could you talk about working with, with Woody the, Allen? With the screenwriter. Oh, yeah, well, that's a different story altogether because Woody's also the director. And in that case, he was a co-star as well. And I noticed with Woody, he always told you, I said, I haven't had any close-ups. He said, I never do close-ups. When I saw the movie, all the close-ups were of him. He went back afterwards and did his own, <laughs> own close-up. <laughs> I said, thanks very much, Woody. <laughs> I won the Academy Award anyway without a bloody close-up. <laughs> okay, over here. Yes. Okay, so this is a I'm production of... I'm going to do it. Okay, yeah. production yeah, of I, Hamlet. I, I, yeah, we, that was a black and white Hamlet on television. That, uh, one of the best Hamlets I ever saw was Christopher Plummer in that. Hmm. And, and I, I played Horatio, and we actually shot it in uh, Elsinore Castle, which is actually called Helsingor. And we shot it in, in Denmark, uh, in, in the castle. Um, and it was an extraordinary experience for me. I'd never done Shakespeare before. And there was also a thing, the director said to me, the main problem with Hamlet, he said, is at the end, everybody's dead. <laughs> and Fortinbras comes on, he's got a small part, and he's got to command the stage, and you really need a star. But no star's going to play a part that small. Hmm. I, I said, well, 
have you found someone? He said, I found this young actor, he said, and I think he could command the movie when all the lot, you lot are dead. So I said, what's his name? He said, Donald Sutherland. And he did. He was fabulous. Okay. You didn't know I did Shakespeare, did you? But you've said that you don't particularly uh, love doing Shakespeare. You, you've done some, but you... No, I did. It was the only Shakespeare I, I ever did. I, I, I'm, I'm a very natural, realistic actor. But I, I did, I did uh, uh, um, like it when I did it with Chris. Well, Chris and I were very close friends anyway. Yeah. And, I, and, and so was the director. So I, I was in a sort of shielded area. I, I was okay. Okay, I'll take a few more right here. So if you could talk about The Eagle Has Landed, one of his yeah, favorites. Yeah, that, that, that was an act, actually fact, fact based on a true story. Uh, the, 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 the Germans sent paratroopers to, to kill Churchill. And they, they were killed in Norfolk, and it was all hushed up in the war. And then after the war, they found the bodies, where the bodies were buried, and there was a big article about it. And Jack Higgins, that's why Jack Higgins wrote the story. And... Uh, um, that's where I met Bobby Duval, actually. He played a German general. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that was great. That was the hottest summer in England I'd ever known, and we shot it on the edge of the Thames about five miles from my house, which was also on the edge of the Thames. It was, so it was an idyllic thing to do. It was, so one, some films are like that. Or you, you wind up in Alaska doing a movie, which I once did, <laughs> with someone I won't name. <laughs> okay, we'll uh, take one more, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Harry Brown. But go ahead. What possessed you to change your name from Michael Caine to I Michael Caine? Al I Maurice? always say because there was another Maurice Micklewhite who was already a star. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> what happened was, what I did is I changed my name to Michael White. And I was in the theatre in the country. I didn't have to belong to the British Trade Union, Act, British Actors Equity. And I came to London and I had a little agent and I was trying to get little bit parts in films. And I was Michael White, because it was Morris and Michael White. White so I said Michael White. Uh, and, and I was... I always phoned my agent every evening to see if there was a job. And I phoned her this evening and she said, we got your TV job. She said, but there's already, you've got to join the union to be on BBC television. So I said, okay, I'll join. She said, but there's already another Michael White in the union. So you can keep the name. I'm on the phone in Leicester Square, which is like Times Square here. And she says, well, you can keep the name Michael, of course, but you've got to, we want an, a second name. What, you can't call yourself White. And I look round, and Humphrey Bogart was in the Cane Mutiny yeah. through the trees. And I said, Cain. She said, how do you spell that? I went, C-A-I-N-E. <laughs> and that's how I became Michael Cane. If I'd have looked further, I'd have been called Michael 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> <laughs> so difficult to sign. 
Morris Micklewhite would have been a bugger to sign his autograph. Right, right. You know, it goes like that, Morris. You keep going like that. I know. <laughs> now, you, uh, there have been times in your career when you've done four films a year. You do less, a smaller number of films now. I do one about every 18 months. Right, right. So, yeah, um, yeah I don't do many films. I don't, I don't want to get up. It's too early in the morning. Yeah, six o'clock. You know, it's terrible. The, uh, so the question is, why, why did you choose Harry Brown? Well, Harry Brown, I, I loved... I, I wait for a script that really, basically, I'm retired. But if I get a script that I can't refuse, which Harry Brown was, because, first of all, from a selfish actor's point of view, it was a very good part for me. It's a very good script. And, and uh, um, also, for me, it was, of course, the background. And there was also a sort of, sort of pain in the butt, sort of socio-political thing in my mind, is that this uh, pool of young gangsters were, were salvageable and should never have been there in the first place except for the socio-economic situations of the country. And in my country, um, no one seems to take any notice of these guys, and there's getting more and more of them, and they're getting into worse and worse state. And so I thought, if I make this film, maybe some people will notice that they're there mm -hmm. and do something about it. And, and um, from a, a political point of view, not much happened, because in England, you know, at the moment, we, we don't have anybody in there's nothing happens. But from a, from a ch charitable point of view, it, it, it really did work, and it, it helped the, young, the youngsters. Because I, I don't believe, you know, because I am one of them, um, I know that, that, that there's a thing of saying, lock the bastards up and throw away the key because they're scumbags, you know? But they are not. We are responsible. The parents are responsible for what they are. Yeah. I mean, I used to talk to those gangs in the middle of the night, and every time I got a group of them, and they'd always talk to me because, you know, they knew who I was, and, and they always spoke to me as, as sort of like I, was, I am them, which I am. And, and, you know, and I would always say, who's got a father living in the house? There'd be eight, nine, ten of them. Occasionally one hand went up, you know. And it's, it's the family unit which let them down in the first place, and the lack of, of government or education... Which, which went further. I mean, there are, in the gang, I mean, not all gangs are, are the Mary Poppins, believe me, but there are psychopaths and sociopaths in those gangs which, which you need different treatment, but 80% of them could be salvaged. And so that's part of my own little socio-economic political message behind this movie. Mm. And, and, and uh, um, a reporter said to me, rather, I said this, and a reporter said to me yesterday, rather accusingly, he said, oh, really? I said, yeah. And he said, Do you, have you ever seen this film with public? No, I said, I've never seen it with a public audience. He said, I've seen it. He said, and when I saw it, every time you shot one of those kids, everybody cheered. Mm. He said, you know, you call that? He said, what are you advising people to do? I said, well... That's exactly what I'm saying, because all you ever do, politicians to me, you half think. You say, how dare he make that film? These people, they're cheering. An old man killing innocent boys. You know, the, the London Times called the picture odious. And you say, have you no idea what I'm doing? 
think one thing step further. If you do nothing, this is what is going to happen. And as you can see, it's happening now because the audience is cheering in the cinema. And what you got here, what did you have on the weekend? They called out the army in Chicago to deal with, with gangs, you know? So it's a very serious side to this movie. As a matter of fact, there's only a serious side to this movie. You, you'll find in a minute. Good job I gave you a few laughs because you won't get many in a minute. <laughs> um, I, I do want to ask what it was like to... This was, a, I believe, a first-time director. So you've, of course, worked with so many yeah, great directors. Uh, so you, in order to entrust um, you know, yourself to... to yeah, his, his name is Daniel Barber. And he did a, the movie I saw. He did a short film called The Tonto Woman for which he got uh, uh, nominated uh, for an Academy Award. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and then I met him, and, and I was terribly impressed with him. I'll tell you, if, if you're a film buff or anything, notice what he has a talent which surprised me. I mean, he has an incredible use of sound in this movie. He will telegraph what's coming. You listen to him, he will telegraph. You'll hear things coming, and you, you don't quite know, and then suddenly, bang, it's on you. And the sound has already... <laughs> While you're still listening to the dialogue for the last yeah. scene, this sound is coming up, and you, you don't quite realise what he's doing to you. You suddenly go, oh, Christ, what happened there? He's very, very clever. And he directed a lot of commercials. And what I liked about it, these young directors is they know all that technical stuff. They know the new lenses, the sounds, and what you can do with all this thing, you know, what you can do with things. And he is a supreme example of that, you'll see in this movie, technically. And... I had never seen the opening sequence. <laughs> you, wait, I'm leaving because I can't watch it again. But you, <laughs> you'll be quite shattered when you see it. Yeah, no, it's not that bad. But it, it, it's, he did it so beautifully, really beautifully. And the last thing I want to ask you is what it was like to play this character, to play Harry Brown. In some ways, it evokes some of the earlier tough guy characters that you've played, and it's, it's yeah, a, a well, pensioner who becomes very... Yeah, well, it's very different because this is an old sick man. Yeah. And, and so it's an entirely different thing. And it's desperate. He's desperate. And I played, I, although I, I'm playing the sort of vigilante in a way, I play him as a victim, not as a perpetrator. I'm not Charlie Bronson going around yelling and screaming and going, have another go, bang, bang, bang. No, it's, <laughs> it's not like that. Well, I'll leave you to decide, okay? Okay. Well, uh, just before we start, uh, if... Since you're not going to stay for the movie, uh, we're going to take uh, just a two or three minute break before we start. If you could let um, Sir Michael Caine get to the back of the theater first, um, since so you can um, leave without seeing the film. Uh, but we really well, want to... I've seen it four times. <laughs> you know, but, um, it's enough. I don't... We want to uh, wish you the best. It's an amazing performance and a very, very powerful film. So thanks so much, and thanks for being here tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.